The Loved Ones is Erica Murray's new play. Three women are thrown together by force of circumstances, all linked by one man, Robin, who has died six months earlier in London. The women in question are Nell, Robin's mother, played by Jane Brennan, in whose kitchen in West Clare the drama takes place. Gabby, a young university student of Robin's who arrives from London out of the blue, seven months pregnant. Robin's wife, Orla, played by Grania Keenan, who's on her way with his ashes and in for a few surprises when she gets to her mother-in-law's home. There's also a fourth character, Cheryl Ann, played by Helen Norton, an American tourist who is Nell's Air, an Airbnb guest. The Loved Ones is a new Rough Magic production opening next week at the Gate Theatre as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival. And I'm delighted that uh, writer Erica Murray and director Ronan Phelan are, are with me now in studio. I, I told you before we came to our Erica that <laughs> I just I I was bouncing up and down today reading reading the script. I shouted at the page, you know, <laughs> because somebody was revealing something at some point to somebody else that they shouldn't have been telling. And I said, stop, stop talking, stop. I, I found myself r- laughing out loud at other lines. Oh, brilliant. And then I found myself really moved by Aww. sections of it as well. The play opens with the line, uh, so what, what exactly is it that she says, seven months, I'm due at the end of August. That's yeah. the opening line of the play <laughs> yeah. from this young woman who arrives at the door of, of an older woman's house. We know none of them are, are, are the relationships between them. Where did it all start for you, this story? God, it's, it's always such a hard question to answer mm. because you never really know where mm. it, they begin, begin, Mm. you know. I think plays take seed like years before you actually start even putting pen to paper. But I definitely think I was spending time around West Clare during COVID and I guess all the when I have characters in my head that won't kind of you know, away. go away. That's it. Yeah. Mm. And you and who, start wondering who, what they're going to say to each other and do to each other. So yeah. we had we have the the mother of, of yeah. the you know the, the man is dead the, the the Robin character that we hear been spoken about quite a mm-hmm. lot. We have his mother. We have this young person arriving at her door saying she's seven months pregnant. Yeah. We know that his wife is on her way to the house yes. to visit the mother to to, to uh, scatter his ashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's this other Airbnb guest. Now, you said these characters were in your head. Was one or other of them knocking harder or, or speaking louder than, than the, the other three? Because there know, are four of them in total, obviously. Yeah, that's... Um, it's tricky to answer because actually I think Cheryl Ann came into my head. She's the, the, she's the Airbnb she's the guest, Airbnb the American guest. visitor. She was in an early draft of something else that was kind of nothing and just flittered into the bin, mm. <laughs> actually. <laughs> and um, I really loved her. And yeah. then when I started to write Nell as Nell a is woman the who is... Yes, yeah. Nell is the mother who... Um, and write that type of, you know, tough sort of farmer, uh, Irish mm. woman in Clare and this kind of real ballsy teenager. Yeah, well, and she, she has been a single parent herself. Yes. Right? She has brought Robin up as, as, a, as a lone parent. Yeah, she has. And that kind of mirror character of Gabby that she is pregnant now at the same mm. time Nell was pregnant. I sort of thought, oh, actually, Cheryl Ann is so fun. Maybe she could interrupt this scene and kind of be another person in the midst of this. And Orla, that character was sort Here's of... Here's the wife. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and grieving, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I feel like she is probably, you know, an exaggerated version of, like, 
me and a lot of my friends mm. you know she's uh, she's she's a bit older but she's kind of she's running out of time i think that character and she feels this heightened sense of you know want and yeah. desperation so so the the drama is upped for everyone yeah, it certainly, yeah. <laughs> it certainly is and we'll come back to Warner because she's a very very interesting character in many aspects of, yeah. of of her life and her story obviously that is being told in this play but ronan i'm i'm guessing uh, your reaction as a director when you read the script must have been something close to my own. I mean, the the, the play plays are hard to read, but this play reads so well. It just rollicks along with these wonderful characters bouncing off each other, making you laugh and cry as you go. Yeah, it was a no brainer. It was one of those moments where you're like, buy, buy it, buy it, <laughs> kill everybody else in the room just so you're the only one who knows about it. Where, yes. come, where, where, did it where did it first appear towards you? How did it come at you? It was a. Uh, so I'd worked with Erica previously. We made a play together up at the Lyric in Belfast. Mm. And then, and I'm a associate director at Rough Magic. So in the Rough Magic. Um, Compass Initiative, which is like a program for the development and commissioning and production of uh, a new suite of plays. Um, when commissions became available, uh, Erica was, you know, first on top of the list yeah. from my point of view. So uh, a commission was offered to Erica, but with no particular, uh, as in Roof Magic tends to uh, want the artist to lead. Yeah. And so... It just so happened that Erica simultaneously had been working away on this particular play. And so when she felt ready to offer the first draft to be read, she sent it in as the answer to that commission. And our jaws collectively hit the floor because I guess the world was so alive. The characters were so vital and so much of what of the content of the play, I had never heard people say on stage before. Yeah, because you, you know, you're talking about a first draft there. I'm guessing that the first draft and the draft that you're using right now are not that far away from each other. Am I right? Or are they totally different? They're not totally different at all. Yeah. Uh, there has been some... Yeah, shifts. And and, and some just investigation. Yeah. But no, I mean, like the, the, the tent poles of the of the story were all there from the get. And it has played, you've done, you've previewed it in, in yeah. Limerick for a Tell me about that Three experience. Nights, Three yeah. nights. Are, are you from that neck yeah, of the woods? I'm yeah, I'm from Limerick. And um, oh, the first night was one of the most terrifying <laughs> nights of my life. But yeah. it was also the mo one of the most satisfying and, and exhilarating. Yeah, as well. I'm you guessing, know. like I said, told you I was shouting at the page. <laughs> I, I'm yeah. guessing that there, there's one particular scene in this play and I can't go into any of the details <laughs> on it because it's a big reveal to one of the characters. Yeah. Um, I, I would say there were audible <laughs> gasps in the audience. Am I right? Yeah, there there was, I mean, I can't say what they said here. They were cursing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there there may have been cursing in my <laughs> kitchen this been. morning as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that was incredible because you, you know, I, I've been alone with it essentially until yeah. rehearsals for three years. And so you're, you're hoping and, you know, imagining these scenarios and then to to see people respond in that way was was just incredibly exciting. Yeah, yeah. you you were saying, um, Ronan, that the, these characters and all of them do say things that are you know <laughs> extraordinary to say the very least. You, you were saying that it, you felt there were things that you hadn't been hearing that often on Irish stages. What what in particular were they were the aspects of these four women that that spoke so loudly to you? Well, the uh, you know the. <laughs> it's very hard the, to talk about it now, it isn't is it, without giving too much I suppose, away. Um, there's a lot 
discussed in the play about fertility, yeah. about uh, about the struggle to become pregnant or the struggles when you are pregnant. Um, it's an existential comedy about wombs is the tagline <laughs> they wouldn't let me use. So, so now you've had you put it out there. <laughs> now I've had my opportunity to broadcast it nationally. But that is true. I mean, like, uh, they're very, a lot of how the value and meaning of these women and their lives a lot of the times is being mm. equated to or measured by uh, their ability as mothers to become mothers or, uh, yeah, and yeah. and how they relate to each other. Because yeah, there's I mean, it's a line I've heard before for sure, but it, mm. and I don't mean to be reductive, but it's one of the things you say in the play, uh, Erica, you know, this idea that, um, oh, I can't remember which of the characters oh, says is, it. Uh, is it you spend your t- all your 20s, yeah, trying not to get pregnant and... Most of the 30s trying to do the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's obviously True. a line that, I mean, it, it is it is a it is a well-used, a, a yeah, well-known phrase, but it, it obviously was something that you and your friends, that this this had been a topic of conversation. I had mean, it. I think it, it always is as a woman. You're, you're always thinking about it, wondering about it, talking about it. Mm. You know, and a lot of women of all different ages after the previews in Limerick, a lot of the feedback was that, this is the stuff we talk about in private, but it's actually, you know, we talk about it all the time and you wonder about it, of course. And so um, it's just, it it's great to see people responding, like really connecting with that, that they think we I, talk about that. And you also, I mean, it opens up a very interesting debate in and around, uh, I mentioned the fact that Nell, the mother of Robin, mm-hmm. the man who has died at the feast, we know this from the outset, the beginning yeah, of the yeah. play, and we know that Gabby is pregnant yeah. from the beginning of the play. Every, yeah. Loads of other things are revealed <laughs> to us as the play goes along. But um, it, the way she speaks about how she was treated which would have been what in the nineteen eighties or thereabouts? Yeah. She would have been yeah. pregnant with with Robin, the the man. Yeah, she talks about this as uh, Jane Brennan's character. She talks about how she was treated, and it's interesting how 30, 40 years later, Gabby is afraid of precisely the same yeah. things. I know. I'm kind of interested in that sort of yeah. So what what sort of things? What yeah. sort of things is she afraid of? What's she worried about? Gabby? I think she's worried about what people will think of her. Like you know. Most of us are all the, you know, it's just a human thing. You're worried what mm. people are going to think. If they see a young girl pregnant, they might think, oh, she's not taking herself seriously. Or, you know, there's so many horrible misconceptions around it, you know. And, and I think society tells you that you should be pregnant at a certain time or not at a certain time. And, mm. you know, it's it's something that's very visible as well. You know, I think... Um, I think, you know, a strange way, Gabby is worried about the same things that Nell was worried about. That's what I yeah. find extraordinary. And yet yeah. it is totally plausible that she would be. She's, yeah. a, she's a very successful university student. Yeah, she mm-hmm. is. Yeah. She takes herself incredibly seriously. And I think, you know, she, um, but but that's what I guess the play is is saying, that these mm. things, I guess you think you've come a long way and actually... Maybe maybe not as far as you think. You know? Also, I mean, so there's that societal aspect mm. to it, but there's the very personal aspect uh, of it in and around um, conception and fertility. Yeah. And the kind of pain and stress that that can put on oh a relationship God, yeah. and on, on, on the people themselves. I have to say yeah. some of those conversations were the ones I found myself, even as I think about them now, yeah. I kind of... I kind of become moved, but they were incredibly moving. Some of the conversations in particular between Orla, the the wife of Robin, and her mother-in-law. Yeah. It, it, it beautifully realised 
I mean, oh, I don't know how you. you how you how you imagined <laughs> those conversations. Yeah, um, that's again, it's really I guess when a character is so real to you, they kind of start pouring out. And was in that a way. Orla? Orla that was, was the one Orla. that was yeah. speaking loudly and, to you there. And Nell, I definitely feel like any character that I'm spending time with, I'm going to feel like they're very real. Mm. You know, that's why I choose to keep writing them. But um, I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe it's, I, I don't know, but Orla definitely has always felt very well-rounded in mm. my head. She's, yeah, uh, people really <laughs> responded to her again in Limerick because she's quite, you know, she's quite abrasive actually as a character. She comes in and she kind of, I, I was really, um I, re- I was quite surprised and also like delighted that people were really on her side. You know, they can see that kind of desperation mm. Mm. and she's trying to keep everything under control. You know, her thing is and control. And she's dealing with the loss of her husband, yeah, the man she yeah, loved. Yeah, and it's horrible. Yeah, she's really struggling, but really trying not to. <laughs> yeah. I, another thing, and I won't, I won't ask Erica to explain how she did this either, but maybe <laughs> I'll come to you on it, Ron. It's, it's how the play shifts at times from you know, moments of deep emotion to moments of high comedy. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it turns on the sixpence in, you know, in the space of a line or two. Yeah. How How is that in terms of directing and shaping that and, and seeing it out in front of an audience? How has that played out? I mean, that really has been the work of the rehearsals is trying to calibrate the tone, which, as you say, is uh, delicate in the sense that it needs to have the flexibility to move in both directions, depending on what the moment needs, while at the same time not trying to determine an overall tone. So it's not just comedic or it's not just dramatic, it rather has the capacity for all. In that way, I suppose, uh, the thing about Erica's writing that that uh, seduces me the most is it's it's its humanity and its generosity. I mean, you're talking about audience responses there. They are not, they don't feel drawn from the audience in a in a in a in a manipulative way. It feels like there is a generosity at work in the play that invites engagement, that draws the the viewer in rather than, um, and it feels like she's letting us know that it's hard work. And she knows it is, but that like there's crack to be had along the way, you know. Yeah. Oh no, I mean there are, you know, as I say, laugh, laugh out loud moments and deep Kleenex moments yeah. <laughs> uh, as well. Um, and what another thing that struck me, I said this mm. before we came to her. This is quite definitely a play. It is not yeah. a play masquerading or a television script masquerading as a play. It is not a short story masquerading as a play. Yeah. It's a play with four characters, scenes with one, two, three, four people in them, you know. Yeah. Uh, where does that kind of play writing W-R-H or W-R-I-G-H-T <laughs> where does that skill come from? You must have, were you a reader of plays? Were you a watcher of yes, plays? Yes, I was a reader of plays definitely actually and, and also a big watcher of plays. Um, I've always loved the theatre and I, I, I studied drama at Trinity and you know I had only probably seen one or two plays before then and mm. been in a lot of plays you know as a teenager mm. so I don't really know where I got that idea and, to do and that who, but, yeah. Yeah, but who were you reading because I mean the, the, the plays yeah. is so dramatically structured it's so theatrically oh, structured um, well I read I, I love at the moment I go through different phases actually so I do read a lot of plays and I love at the moment American female writers like Annie Baker Amy Herzog I'd really follow who is 
you know, on Broadway there at the moment mm. or off Broadway. And I think they're two of the most amazing. And, you know, reading those plays actually made me feel like, oh, actually, the stuff that I'm thinking about could also be a play. You know, <laughs> they, they those women write things that are really unusual to be heard on stage as well. But you they're very delicate, very light touch uh, writers. And it made me kind of think, oh, actually, maybe the stuff that I'm thinking about could also be dramatic, yeah. in a, you know, in a quiet kind of heartfelt way as well. Um and so, yeah. and would you you mean would you sit with those scripts? Do you analyze them? You know, saying right, what has she done here? How has she structured that scene? How has she got that person on stage and off stage? Which is what playwriting yeah. is is all about. Like wheel writing is all about making the wheel round. You know. Yeah, mm. that's so that's very observant because I actually kind of I would read the same play over and over again. Mm. There's you know like Bruce Naris that play we both went to see downstage. Yeah. It was so there were so many characters on stage and I just really wanted to know how they how, how did how, how did they get them on and off? Yeah, normal that it's not just you know. Oh, there's a doorbell and someone else is there. It felt very natural, the movement throughout the space. So, yeah, I definitely like it sounds nerdy, but I do take it seriously and I do study well, plays. Yeah, yeah, I do. Well, you're a playwright. So, <laughs> so why, why wouldn't you do the nerdy thing for the playwright, <laughs> playwright might be doing? So what where are we at now with the with the gate? Are we are you still in the technical stage? Are you just sorting out the stage up there? We're just what? about to start technical rehearsals at the gate. Right. So we preview from this Friday. Uh, we preview Friday and Saturday and then we open next Monday and we'll run for three weeks until the 21st of October. Yeah, as, as part of the Dublin, as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival. Are the nerves at a, at a high <laughs> state at the moment? Because I mean, you kind of have to yes. hand it over at a certain point, I'm guessing. Yeah. There's no, there are yeah. no rewrites at this point. Maybe during previews in Limerick, there might have been a couple of little polishes here and there, but it's done, I'm guessing now. Yeah, it's nearly done. Oh, good one. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, That's a tough question at the yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess you'd never feel like it's fully done. Do you? People say that plays are never finished, they're abandoned. So you kind of have to abandon it at some point, I guess. But yeah. I definitely feel after the preview week in Limerick more kind of excited now than than completely nervous, but still a bit nervous. Well, too. many of the yeah, greatest yeah. playwrights revised their plays even <laughs> after big first productions, etc., etc. And I'm thinking particularly of people like Tom Murphy, who was always a great reviser, mm. you know, and obviously Jane Brennan involved in the cast here will be more I than know, aware of that particular I know, I aspect know. of things. Uh, Erica, if, I, I'm very excited to see it. Oh, um, brilliant. I'm looking forward to seeing how it's realised and it does sound like a, a phenomenal cast. Congratulations on the script. And Thank I hope you. that it does very well. Ronan, it's all down to you you can't blame the script you can't blame the cast so if it goes wrong it'll be your fault that's fine I'll take it <laughs> thanks so much to both of you for, for coming in this evening The Loved Ones is the title of the play it runs at the Gate Theatre from the 2nd through until the 21st of October previews from the 29th of September and all of that as part of Dublin Theatre Festival you'll get full details on gatetheatre.ie Kristen Hirsch was part of an extraordinary wave of acclaimed musicians that emerged in the United States in the 1980s and 1990s. A founding member of Throwing Muses and 50 Foot Wave, who, along with contemporaries like The Breeders, Belly and The Pixies, blazed a trail for alternative rock music across the world. Kristen released her first solo album in 1994 and recently brought us album number 12 in that solo career, an album with the wonderful title of Clear Pond Road. On Saturday, October the 21st, Kristen comes 
comes to the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlirip to perform songs from that album and from throughout her career. I'm hoping and guessing she has just landed in London to begin her tour of the UK and Ireland and she's on the line right now. Lovely to have you with us this evening, Kristen. Thank you so much for, for being on the programme. And let me start with the title of that album. I feel I, I want to be in, in whatever space that is, Clear <laughs> Pond Road. It sounds That's like a it. wonderful place. It does, doesn't it? I haven't been. <laughs> <laughs> My little boy and I uh, were traveling the world on tour uh, in a junk shop. We found ourselves staring at this street sign. And, you know, usually you and your little boy aren't doing the same thing. <laughs> like staring at a thing and we we bought it and we put it up on the the dashboard of our truck and said okay this is what we aspire to we want we want to be there whatever it is we want to be more like that and not be subject to the ripples on our ponds that give us such erratic heartbeats so we brought it home we put it up in our kitchen and we we tried to become more like the road sign that's on the cover of this record and I I made I made a record when I thought I had gotten there and I thought no no that's not it and I trashed the whole thing <laughs> and then I made this record and, and this record brought to me the, the clarity that I was going for I right, think so, trying to get to that road <laughs> yeah so you, you kind of feel you have got there now you talk about your little boy how long ago was this road sign acquired and how little was the little boy then and is he a much yeah. bigger little boy now? <laughs> He's a bigger little boy. It took me a while to shake off erratic heartbeats. <laughs> but it wasn't that long ago. It may be five years ago. Well, all right. But yeah, he's six feet tall now, but he was a little kid then. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. And 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 I was interested to to see that because I wanted to listen to uh, the opening track on the, on the record. And when I saw um, the title of this track, which is bewitched reruns I thought I wonder what is Kristen Hirsch writing about here what metaphor is she going to put into my mind about bewitched and Samantha and that wonderful television series that we all watched <laughs> and then I read what you said it's about it it's a good show right it is a good <laughs> yeah. show yeah so what is be- tell me what was on your mind as you wrote as you wrote bewitched reruns what metaphor well, or I'm- what reality <laughs> both I, I kind of don't believe in metaphors because we don't need them. We're, we're in them, you know. <laughs> so we were literally watching Bewitch reruns uh, on our tour bus, you know, in, in my bands all the time because it was a beautiful thing, that show. <laughs> but also in my life, um, I suppose, imagine there's a, a spell cast on you and you move through time so your your memories are then bewitched. and. And what more memories to shine, you know, through the windshield of your car or in front of your eyes, pasted on the back of your glasses or on your medicine cabinet mirror than the bewitched ones. <laughs> well, do you know what? Now, I also read somewhere that you said, I'm not a poet. I want you to retract that statement immediately on the basis <laughs> of, of the answer you've just given me. Let's have a let's have a little listen to some of Bewitched reruns opening track on the album Clear Pond Road from Kristen Hirsch. Mm-hmm. 
opening couple of minutes of the track Bewitched reruns opening track on the album Clear Pond Road from Kristen Hirsch Kristen is with me on the programme this evening ahead of her appearance in uh, the at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera in uh, October October the 12th isn't it yes next month um, one thing I wanted to ask you about that how many guitars are there at the top of that and playing throughout it Kristen is it several <laughs> steel string guitars are there a couple of big 12 string guitars in there or was there even a dulcimer in there such a wonderful string plucked string sound that we get at the top I love that sound it, it actually isn't as many guitars as it sounds like because as a producer I don't like things to be tasty which is what all other producers do like <laughs> so <laughs> I like them to be funky, which isn't a word, but I'm forever moving things away from the click track to take them a little bit out of time and even letting them play a little bit out of tune so that there's some shakiness in there. And that's that doubling effect. I do play probably four guitars, and one of them is a baritone acoustic octavized. So there's this broad spectrum of acoustic instrumentation that actually isn't as lush in the room as it is in practice. Right, yeah. Well, there's a wonderful lush sound off it there and and it still has that wobbly kind of slightly not quite exactly together, which is what you want it to be. You don't want it to be perfect. Yes, it's played to a click, so it's difficult to achieve this. (laughs) Because I play all the instruments, Mm. I have to sometimes fake it and I play in a power trio in a 50-foot wave, so... It's difficult to play out of time when you have trained yourself to do so. But a Nashville strong acoustic is what creates the 12-string effect. It's the alternate strings on a 12-string guitar, but you don't have that sound. You have yeah. a more off-kilter, well, seasick. Do you feel seasick now? Well, there's, there, there is a touch of that. It's a kind of a woozy feeling about it as, as you're listening yeah, to you're it. Yeah, you're woozy. <laughs> you're um, welcome. I, I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, 
how far away does that feel to you from, you know, I think most people will, when they think of throwing music, think of you, they will think certainly of throwing muses, you know, the band that you formed with your great friend and stepsister, as it turned out, Tanya Donnelly, uh, back back in the, in the day. How far away from that music does your solo music feel to you? Not, not far at all. Uh, throwing Muses is still working. We put mm. out records every couple of years, but for the most part, we just play. Uh, and this is true of myself and 50 Foot Wave as well. That We have this this idea that music is a river you can jump into. And if you don't jump into it, you'll be a little bit dumber that day. So sometimes we record what we've put down in the room and sometimes oh, have I lost I think I've lost. I'm going to oh. date myself by saying tape <laughs> no I lost I, I, unfortunately I oh, lost you I, brief, disappear? I, I, I lost you just briefly there so don't censor anything you said in that little bit you're saying sometimes you jump into the river and sometimes then so it makes you a little bit smarter that day to jump into the river. So that's how we function as musicians. A great deal of this material goes unrecorded. A great deal of the material we record goes unreleased. So our perception is one of music, not the music business. And when you stylize the material as a release, that's when you apply a name and a production mm. technique to the output. But the material itself is only an unselfconscious moment, really. It's all autobiographical, so I have to live these stories. I need to earn them in order to play them. But there's no Kristen ever. If there was, I would fire that song. You know, <laughs> the song would suck. <laughs> you, you you mention you know it's about the music. It's not about the music business. How how difficult a place is it to be in the middle of the music business? You've you've had to navigate it for quite some time now. Um, is it very different in 2023 from what was back in the 1980s and 1990s? First of all. Yeah, this is my dream come true. I, I I didn't understand the idea that music would be considered a product instead of music. They they didn't seem to want to at these the corporate um, label that we were on in America uh, didn't seem to want music. They wanted product. And that was because you can't tell a music listener what to love and what to buy. But you can tell a product listener what to like and what mm. to buy because they're no, it's, it's breadth over depth. And I wanted depth over breadth. And I could see that when vanity walked in, soul would leave. But I could also see vice versa, that when soul walks in, vanity is gone. And I wanted to engage thusly. And it was very difficult for me to extricate myself from a sexist industry that wanted not just the music to be a product, but a woman to be a product. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, because in fact, I was going to say that, how often were you asked to be a product yourself? And it reminds me pretty much, uh, obviously in recent times, we've been mourning the death of Sinead O'Connor, uh, particularly in this part of the world. And her. many people spoke about her letter to Miley Cyrus about, you know, be careful that you don't make the, yourself into the product. Be careful to let it be your music that's doing the talking rather than you. You're saying something similar, I think. Don't let Christy into the song. Christy, let, let the song be the song. It's not about Absolutely. you. Absolutely. 
Yep, and that's that's true for anyone, no matter where they sit on the the gender spectrum. And I think it's it's encouraging that we're facing this sort of parasocial selfie culture where people are getting a taste of what it was like for us trying to present ourselves as musicians when they didn't even want that. They they wanted something so truly damaging that when they did demand it of me, it didn't go well. <laughs> I would say, what what message do you think you're sending? And this this expression you want me to make at the camera, are you telling me to kiss up to money? You know, and this is not about white males. <laughs> Be against white male privilege, maybe, and do not kiss up to it. But being against white males is both racist and sexist. This is a a humanist issue. And my mistake was in going in thinking that I could say, no, 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 women are humans. And it's like, mm. no, 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 we don't want that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're kind of told to be behave like the woman, like a woman, and, or in other words, the woman that we want you to be like, rather than the woman exactly. you are. They had a lot of trouble with the fact that I could play my own instrument, that I was the songwriter and the producer, that I knew what I was doing. They preferred someone more malleable who liked photo shoots. And I would be in the back of every photo shoot you know, if I showed up at all. <laughs> they didn't like that at all. I, and the other the other aspect that I, I wanted to, uh, of, of the music business, I suppose, that I wanted to talk a little bit about, Kristen, is, you know, the value of the music itself. Um to you as an artist, but I suppose when we think of, uh, particularly with with Fifty Foot Wave, where you did give away the music for free, but that was kind of despite the the corporate side of the business, if you like. <laughs> yes, I wanted to see how far I could push the DIY model and move away from the big fat dollar sign that runs. Uh, the entertainment industry, and I live in the entertainment industry country. Mm. So <laughs> we we lived on the road. We we volunteered our time. Um, we participated in no aspect of the industry whatsoever, and we worked. That's a job, as it turns out. I wanted to see if music could still. Um, be given to people. And so we gave the the recorded music away as well. And Billboard magazine found out that we did 2 million downloads and a day one release called Free Music, ironically. <laughs> and they said, you can't do this. They called me at my house and I was like, how did you get this number? <laughs> they said, you have to give us the catalog numbers. You know, you've gone off script here. <laughs> You're not allowed. And I, I kept saying, yeah, I've lost you briefly again oh, there. And the you, guy said... You kept saying oh, what, Chris? Okay. And you kept saying what? I just kept saying, don't measure music. This is, mm. again, you know, depth over breadth. I want to sell a record to someone who listens a million times rather than a million records to people who listen once, you right. know? And he said, understood, but you still have to play by the rules, which it actually is... A good point. And I said, well, you know, we didn't charge for this. And he said, oh, never mind. We don't care. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering, I said, yeah, I'm wondering to what it. extent, uh, how do you feel then about, you know, the current situation where many starting out and young artists find that they, they have to put their music up online for free with with the, you know, where little or no money is going to come their way at all. And there's a kind of an expectation among a, a younger generation that, well, of course it's free, it's on the internet. I, I can listen to it for nothing. 
is that a pro- yes. has that become a bit of a problem? I think we haven't seen the dust settle. I, I have personally never made a penny on any of my records ever, so I don't have much to compare it to. And I think we will benefit from having a musically literate populace who can no longer be marketed to, lied to, the way they have been with a kind of uh, fashion sound that is not actually substantive music. It doesn't love you. (laughs) You know, the horror image is very apt. The music is a horror as well, no matter who plays it. And so while this is a difficult time period, I think we will benefit by taking music out of the demographic, out of the genre, and back into the, the substantive Kristen, it is really interesting to speak with you. I'd love to have more time to, to mull over it all with you. But um, I hope you'll enjoy your visit to Dublin when you get here and best of luck with the tour. Thanks so much for being with oh, us this I evening. I always do. Can't wait. Thank you for having me, dear. Not at all. That's Kristen Harsh. Her new album is called Clear Pond Road. Out now, Kristen will be in the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera on October the 21st playing songs from that album. And you never know, you might get some others in there as well. The night is sold out, but keep an eye out on the website. Paviliontheatre.ie returns may become available. And you can find out more on Kristen's own website, kristenhirsch.ie. Hungry Hill follows the daily struggles of a community of sheep farmers as they negotiate the mountainous terrain of the Berra Peninsula. The farmers Connie and John Doyle work alongside their neighbours, the Van Mechelens, who arrived in Ireland in the 1980s from the drowned land of Seftinga in Holland, on the Holland-Belgium border, leaving behind a farm which lay too close to a nuclear power station. Delighted to be joined by filmmakers Michael Holly and Mika Van Mechelen in studio with me this evening. And maybe first of all, Mika, bring us back to that. You probably don't remember much of it because you were very young at the time. I think were you six or seven? That I was kind of... six years old when yeah. I moved to Ireland, but so, I remember quite a bit. A strong memory of it then. <laughs> what were the reasons that that your parents uh, decided to up sticks and move to Ireland? Well, the the primary reason was the just the proximity to this industrial zone, which is. Um, a region in it, so Safting is a region that's very special because it's uh, because of its biodiversity, but it's extremely close to the estuary of Antwerp and the River Schelde flows into the North Sea there, and there's a huge industrial zone. Um, pharmaceutical industry is is huge there, and so there was a lot of pollution, um, and the nuclear power station was. It less than ten kilometers, really, from where we were living. So, I I remember smelling the the chemicals in the in the air um, as a child. When the wind came from the east, I would have to keep my bedroom window closed. And if you're grazing sheep in a marshland that's so close to to a place that's so well polluted, basically, you're you're going to have problems. So the decision was not to graze the sheep in that in that marshland, but to come and graze it in the wild beauty of the Berra Peninsula. Exactly. My my parents, my mother knew Ireland. My father didn't, um, and my father would have liked to move to Canada, but it was a bit too far for my mother. She she wanted to stay closer to to family, mm. so she said, "Let's let's go to 
to Ireland and he agreed and that's what they did. And so, and you are there still um, living in, is it the same, is it the same family farm that yes, you were living in? In, two th- in 2000, I managed to, to acquire my own place, but within a couple of kilometres of, of my father's mm. farm, for, which I'm now um, farming with my son, one of my sons. I have yeah. three, so, <laughs> so you manage, I'm, lo- I'm you lucky. <laughs> are they younger or older than the guy we see in the in the, in the film? Do we, we see more than one son? My oldest son is is 26, and I have twins as well. All right, yeah. yeah. And Adam is the, the one of the twins that's in the film. All right, he's he's the one that we see in the film. Um, let, let's have a listen to uh, a section of the film from. Um, from the bearers because there are two sections and we'll come back to the the kind of Belgium Netherlands section again in in a second but this is um Michael here uh this is the uh, Michael who is Michael with us has he uh, yes Michael here, yeah. yes he is Hi, there uh, how are you Michael um Michael is talking to you here over a cup of tea <laughs> i believe uh, uh, about why you're not interested in getting involved in tourism in the area. You want to be farmers. You don't want to be anything else. Let's have a listen. No, you'll be, you'll be very trapped into what you're doing. It's yeah. like you're, you're free to do nothing. What's your free to do? Yeah. If you can't do the things you're doing. So the ask. kind of farming that you do and you do make, it probably doesn't fit in the great grand plan. Of I the... don't think it does. I'm, I haven't been here for some of the conversation. I, I don't know, I just like my, I value my privacy, I suppose. Mm. Um, you mean with tourism, the tourists? It's never been something I'm, I'd consider. Mm. No. No Airbnb or anything no, out there? No, never. No, that's probably not it. it I, it's kind of, and it's the reason that my father came over here as well. Like he To get away from my life. Yeah. They, he was asked in Holland if he wanted to stay on and then take people out, you know, as a mm. shepherd and do demonstrations and stuff. And he just, he didn't want to do it. Came over here and no. started over, really. But it, it's a different kettle of fish over there because the population so much bigger. There we go. That's a, a scene from Hungry Hill. And yes, it was Mika van Mechelen, who's with me in studio, who you heard speaking there. You also heard Michael Holly, who's involved in the making of the film. And the other person we should, I should have mentioned before we went to the clip, who's vital to the story, mentioned him in the, in the introduction, uh, Connie Doyle. Uh, just right. explain who he is, first of all, uh, before I go Connie, to Connie is a sheep farmer from Berra, um, and John is his brother. John also features, but Connie is really very important in the film um, and I got to know Connie because I bought some sheep from Connie and he, he's still very much in contact with me and mm. um, I kind of rely on him to, to guide me a bit <laughs> when I need advice as, as you do as a sheep farmer. Mm. So um, my dad passed away a couple of years ago so I, I don't have that support anymore so Connie's been great. Yeah, and I'll come back to you on the sense of community that there is. It is quite extraordinary in and around the Berra Peninsula, you know, and I'm sure that it, in all places where sheep farming happens. But Michael, Michael Holly, um, you came to the sheep farming world with probably less knowledge than even I have of the sheep farming world, I think, Michael. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I mean, I'm from uh, North Kerry, mm. rural enough, uh, in a village there. But no, never was really involved in farming in any way. So when um, when Mika and I started making the film and I started meeting Connie and John and hanging around, 
Hungry Hill and Beira. Um, it was uh, yeah, it was a new new world mm. for me. It was uh, foreign foreign territory. We get a I think sense. I learned it. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I learned a bit about sheep farming, but not a lot. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, and I, I think probably you were you were there with filmmaking on your mind as uh, uh, maybe more so than sheep farming. But the, that clip that I played gives us a sense of the style of the film. I, I think Michael, in that it very much is. We're in the kitchen with the three of you. It's it's real life happening in front of our eyes. It's it's not fly on the wall. It's something different from that. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's Mika and I started out with that intention that it would be natural and maybe unconstructed in ver- in various ways. So we went along in a very fluid way through the process. A lot of observational filmmaking. You wouldn't call it fly on the wall, mm. no, because I'm in the film and my voice is in the film anyway and Mika is in the film quite a bit and her family and uh, that's the style that we we decided to stick to throughout the whole process Um, rather than kind of write a script and construct it we allowed the the film to happen to us really Um, and it took over a year of filming to kind of get that um, there was a lot of interaction with um, the the two farmers and the, the hill itself and Mika did a lot of filming around her area, but we we just accumulated a lot of that footage and sound before we started kind of piecing it together. Yeah, it, what what struck me in that in that respect, Mika, is it, I kept thinking of the the metaphor of slow cooking. This is like slow filmmaking in some ways, and it it has a parallel in farming. You don't you you can't construct the seasons they're there and you have to live within them the weather will be the way it is some days and the way it is other days it, it yeah. struck me that there was there were a lot of parallels across the way you made the film and the way you live your life that's an interesting observation um yeah i mean i just it's it's how i live it's what i do and it it comes very naturally so it it's like mm. it 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 did take it was an effort obviously but that's that's part of the process. That's part of how I make make films. Yeah, but you have to allow it to happen rather mm-hmm. than than force it. And that struck yeah. me as having parallels. I was asking you before we came to air uh, about the some of the, most of the film is in the Bear Peninsula, undoubtedly. But we also get archive footage from um, your original home place on that Belgium um, Holland border. Explain to me the man that is is speaking to us and the sort of things that he's telling us, which have huge parallels to what's happening right now today in the Barra Peninsula. So he was a, a ranger there in in the in the area. In the, he looked after the nature reserve, and he was. It's strange how that magic sort of happened. That parallel a little bit with Connie, um, the the love of the place, the knowledge, the. The, that he has the wisdom, or that he had, should I say? Hmm. Um, I I never met him, but my parents knew him, um, and yeah, it just goes to show how you know if you really know a place and you have that that knowledge, um, th- how important it is that it's that it's passed on to the next generation as well. And I think we're losing that, and um, that's part of what's important about the film is the knowledge Connie has just the same way Van der Zander had it um it need it should be passed on um and I'm in the lucky position that that I have a son that can take over mm. so we, we're losing that intergenerational connection 
What about um, filmmaking and farming? How 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 easy are they as as bedfellows? Because it strikes me that they, they seem to happen. And it's not as if you say, "Well, I'll take it's a quiet period in the farming now. I'll do make some film," or the opposite way around. Uh, I shall concentrate in the farming for a while because there's not much happening in the film world. Well, the farm is a constant, um, mm. and up until this point, I've been that's what I've been doing very much. But at the moment, I'm actually on a residency here in Dublin, and I will be for two years at the Fire Station Artist Studios. So my son is looking after things for me. Um, so it's I have a bit of a different perspective now on mm. on my work. Um, but I'm intending to go back to Kerry to make films um, about things that I know um, because that's how I work. It's about being embedded. Um, so I don't know whether I'll be making films about farming again. We'll see. Yeah. Um, and for you, Michael, what what has the the making of Hungry Hill, what has that brought to you as, as a filmmaker? Yeah, I mean... We we approached it as an experiment, really. Um, we decided, like I said, to take a method and, and, and kind of throw it at the mountain, so to speak, and, and uh, see what happened. Um, and really what came out in the end, the film that emerged after plenty of work and lots of discussion, we're both very happy with, and especially, I suppose, in a in a cinema setting. We saw it for the first time at the Galway Film Flat there, in July, um, and uh, I think we were both quite surprised at the effects that uh, the combination of sounds and images and archive material that we put together has on an audience. Um, and so we're very happy with that, and I guess we're hoping to do it again and carry on the, the work in various ways. Well, and congratulations on what you've given us so far, and every best wish for those future plans. That's Mika Van Mechlin and Michael Holly. And there will be a screening of Hungry Hill this Saturday, the 30th of September, at the IFI, and that is part of the IFI Documentary Festival. Full details on ifi.ie.